Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Those are great, great words. The fact that we can be in a right relationship with God freely to us because of what Christ has done, it really doesn't get any better than that. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Martin Luther said, that is the doctrine, the teaching upon which we have a standing church or a falling church. Some have put it, it's the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. John Calvin, after him, said that doctrine, the doctrine upon uh, the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone, is like a hinge that the door of the gospel opens upon. It's a great, great reality that we can know we're accepted by God because of what Christ has done. So right now we have peace with God, and yet, sadly. Many times, even many professing Christians are unaware of these things. They're, they're ignorant of such things. And so what I want to do this morning is have us not be ignorant of such things. Many pastors, Christians, unbelievers obviously are ignorant about the great, great reality of justification in the work of Christ. And so I don't want us to be ignorant and don't want you to be ignorant. Certainly none of you are. But so that we're not, let's be clear. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at 10 ways that Christians are far too often ignorant about God's justifying work in Christ. Again, we're not trying to put people down and say, uh, call people out, but ignorance is pretty common when it comes to this great reality, and I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want to be ignorant. I want us to be equipped to help people uh, in, in this process. So we're taking a break from, from our study of the life and ministry of Jesus in Matthew's gospel account, but this will be a good complement to it. Uh, so that's one reason we're going to do it is because it's a good complement. Another reason uh, is because not long ago I did a, uh, a seminar for pastors and I was asked to speak on justification and helping pastors understand it. And I don't ever want a good seminar to go to waste. And so... Um, <laughs> Might as well do it at Omaha Bible Church too. I suspect that nothing I say will be um, things that haven't already been said here. Uh, some, of you, some of you will be able to finish my sentences. Um, this is my favorite doctrine. It's my favorite reality because uh, I want peace with God and I can have it through Christ. And, so, and it really is an important one. So uh, review for some of you. Some of you are new, uh, but it really will be extraordinary, I think, because we have a great God who justifies sinners because of his son. So the first way that we can be ignorant uh, is to have ignorance of the danger. Ignorance of the danger. And we're going to look at Galatians chapter 1 for this. And so if you want to turn to Galatians 1, you can see that we really need to get this right. And if we don't get this right, we're in a bad spot. It's a dangerous place to be. So if you turn to Galatians 1, you'll see, some of you know exactly where I'm going in Galatians 1. It's in 8 and 9, which say the same things. Uh, as you're turning there, I'll remind you that in the book of Galatians, the, the, the problem, there was a conflict. The whole book is about a conflict. And the problem wasn't that people didn't believe in Jesus. Uh, atheism wasn't the problem. The problem wasn't that they didn't believe that he was raised from the dead, that they didn't believe in his deity, um, 
the problem wasn't even that, that they were denying grace or faith, Christ. The rub was whether or not you receive what Christ has done based upon faith and only faith. Versus those who were opposing were saying, it's believing in Jesus, faith, and if you do these things, then eventually God will justify you. And this creates no small battle, okay? Paul is going to draw the line in the sand and essentially say, this is not a, a, let's, we can't agree to disagree. In fact, it's a matter of, we're not part of different denominations now if we disagree over this. We're part of different religions, So is the work of Christ benefiting us based upon what we do and believing in Him? He sort of helps us. Or is it all of Christ and we receive it freely as a gift by faith and by faith alone? That's the rub, okay? We've got to be clear on this. You might want to brace yourself for this because it's pretty intense. Verse 8 says, But even if we, Paul, writing as an apostle, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed, or anathema, or condemned. And then verse 9, As we have said before, so now I say again, If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed or anathema or damned. So it's very sobering. It's very stinging. But it tells us there's a real danger. Don't get this wrong, in other words. It's really crucial. It's critical that we get this right. Someone said to me not too long ago, a fellow pastor said that they, we were talking about a certain teacher who was denying justification by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone, but a very popular Bible teacher. And we were talking about this popular Bible teacher. And this person, this pastor said to me, well, they don't understand justification. They get justification wrong, but at least they have the gospel right. Right? And I did the Scooby-Doo head turn kind of like some of you are doing. And I thought, that, What? Paul actually uses the word gospel and he's talking about justification. So you can't get the gospel right and get justification wrong. So these are serious matters. So let's be serious about them. Again, not so that we can put other people down, so that we can make sure that we're right and help other people the way the Apostle Paul was helping other people, even if it's in a sober kind of way. Let's not be ignorant about the danger. Okay? Let's not be ignorant about the danger. Now let's move on to another way that Christians are sometimes ignorant about this great reality of justification, and that is ignorant, being ignorant of the concepts. Ignorant of the concepts. Consider how many Christians, if you say to them, can you tell me what justification is, don't know. Now if you don't know, I'm not scolding you, you came to the right place. Okay, I'm going to help you. But if it's the doctrine upon which we have a standing church or a falling church, at least pastors should know, right? And and hopefully Christians know. But it's amazing how many pastors, if you say, can you please tell me what justification is? Simply, don't use any Latin, okay? Just, Just tell me what it means in basic layperson terms. How many of them don't know how to answer simply? Not to mention how many Christians don't know. And, and, and we, we've learned things, we've learned wrong things like, well, it means just as if I never sinned. And that's actually not true. To be justified, it's a legal term, a forensic term. It means to be declared, 
as a judge would declare you to be declared... Finish my sentence, please. (laughs) Righteous, yes. It means to be declared righteous. Wonderful. So this is just an equipping seminar. There's no ignorance in this room, right? (laughs) It means to be declared righteous. Uh, to, to stand before God and to be declared righteous. It's not, it's not a transformative word. Uh, transformation is good and transformation is important, but justification is not about you becoming more and more righteous. It's not made righteous as a process. It's declared righteous. The only way it means made righteous is if you're talking about Romans 5 in the context of before God and His court, you're made righteous. But even that carries the concept of it's because He's declared you righteous. So, so far, so good. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, therefore, having been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God. But I would encourage you to to ask questions of friends in a friendly way because you're trying to help, okay? The next word that's important, the next concept we're ignorant of sometimes is the one we were just talking about, righteous. It's used... I don't even know how many times in the Bible. I've counted before, but I forget now. But hundreds of times throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, different versions of the word are used. Right, righteous, just, justified, justification, all stemming from the same word. Um, it's, it's the word for equity, fairness. It's all, all over the place. And yet when you say to someone, Can you, what, what does it mean to be righteous? You get a lot of strange answers. And again, lots of you are above the curve, I know, because we talk about this all the time. And here's kind of how I look at it. If a word is used tons of times in the Bible, I don't have all the time in the world, but I probably should know those words better than I know the words that are only used one time. Again, maybe that's not the best way to approach life, but even when I've studied other languages, the best tools were the ones that said, okay, this word is used more than any other word in this language, so learn this word first. And this word is used the second most of any other word in this language, so learn this word next. And before you know it, you're kind of moving right along because you learned the important stuff first. Righteous is used so many times. Let's make sure we know what it means. And to be righteous means to be an upholder of what? Law. So it's another legal word. It's another law word. An upholder of law. You can consult nine different Greek dictionaries like I did, and that's what it means. Okay? So, if you're justified, you're declared righteous. If you're declared righteous, you're declared an upholder of what? God's law. Of God's law. Now, we're going to talk more about law in a moment. Uh, R.C. Sproul would say people seem to to have an allergic reaction, Christians do, when they hear the word law. Um, It's all over the Old Testament and all over the New Testament as well. And we're going to see that God's law, when you boil it down, we saw it last Sunday, we see it time and time again as love God and love neighbor. So if you're justified, God declares you as someone who has loved God and loved neighbor. Even if you haven't, to his expectations. That's what justification is. And now you have peace with God because you've done the right things. And we know as Christians, even if I haven't loved God perfectly and loved neighbor perfectly, if I'm trusting in Jesus, I have peace with God because His work is credited to me and now God sees me as if I did all the right things. Justification. It's a glorious doctrine. It's a great doctrine. It's a great teaching. It's important. It's the gospel hinge doctrine as Calvin would say. We doing okay so far? 
Let's move on to the third point of ignorance where we don't want to be ignorant, and that is ignorance of Scripture. Ignorance of Scripture. We're going to look at Romans 4, perhaps Romans 3, perhaps Romans 2, 2, perhaps Luke chapter 8. I got myself in trouble the first service. I think we got the first three points done. I'm kidding. We got all ten, but we had to go really fast. Okay, so let's not be ignorant of some key Scriptures. One key scripture when it comes to this whole thing is Romans chapter 4. You hear it a lot from me, but again, I realize uh, you're not going to remember everything I say. Uh, I don't remember everything I say, but if I say things enough, perhaps you'll remember the things I say the most. So I'm going to say Romans 4, 5 the most. Romans 4, 5. What does Romans 4, 5 say? Let's not be ignorant of this. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And the context would be clearly his faith in Christ. But I want you to notice there, believes in him who justifies the ungodly. That is one of those aha moments. At first, it's not an aha moment. At first, you might say, what? That doesn't seem right. God declares ungodly people righteous. If we just take that and isolate it, that's not right. If there is no Christ substitute, then it's not right. I'm going to change the wording just for a moment, just for effect. I don't want to change the Bible, so hear me out. But for effect, God justifies, excuse me, Him who declares godly the ungodly is the idea. That, 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 that's not right. That's nonsense. It doesn't make sense. It makes sense if there's a substitute who is godly. Okay? Every other religion I'm aware of on planet Earth, I'm not aware of everything, but that I'm aware of, some who even claim to be Christian, teach the exact opposite. The unique thing about biblical Christianity, okay, is we believe that God declares righteous the ungodly. Every other religion says if you're godly enough, if you do enough right things like loving God and loving neighbor, eventually God might declare you godly because you are. He might declare you righteous because you are. Biblical Christianity says no. As a matter of fact, absolutely no. Who does God declare righteous? The ungodly. How could this be? How could this possibly be? It would be unjust. Unless we read Romans 4, 5 in the context, there is a substitute who is perfectly godly, who is perfectly righteous, and we trust in Him and His righteousness is credited to us. So we have to... Romans 4, 5 is really worth your time. It's really worth your time to know this. It's humbling. It doesn't stoke our, stoke our pride. It's really hard to know and believe Romans 4, 5 and manipulate people because it causes us to look just to Christ and what He's done. Another text would be Luke chapter 18. I won't take the time to turn there, but in Luke 18, you have a man who realizes he can't earn God's favor because he's a son of Adam and he's sinful. And so what does he do as he's engaging Jesus? He's so frustrated and so defeated by the reality of his sin. He's beating on his own chest because he can't do it. 
because he knows he's ungodly. And what does Jesus say about that man? He went away that day to his house. Starts with a J. Justified. He didn't do anything. He didn't have time to go clean up his life. He didn't have time to quick go do sacrifices. He didn't have time to quick go give all of his money to the poor and do all of these things. In fact, he saw that he couldn't do it. And Jesus says, that's the one who's declared righteous. It couldn't have been because he was godly because he didn't have any time to do any godly things. So that's another good text when it comes to not being ignorant of biblical texts. I would love to take the time to look at Romans 3 for the sake of time. We're not going to do that. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now? Let me ask you this question. According to the text we've seen, is justification something that happens at the beginning of your Christian experience or at the end of your Christian experience? Not a trick question, I promise. The beginning, right? The very beginning. Again, this, this is, it's, it makes Christianity so counterintuitive. It's not if you do enough, if you try hard enough, then eventually God will declare you righteous because you've been righteous enough. Actually, no. Therefore, there is now, therefore, now no condemnation for those who believe. Romans 5, Romans 8. It's absolutely amazing, but it's because of something that's already been accomplished by someone else. It's great. It's extraordinary. We don't want to be ignorant of these texts. I want to take the time to go to Romans chapter 2, but we simply don't have the time to do that, so we won't do that. I want to go to Romans chapter 3, verse 10. None righteous, no, not one, so we look outside of ourselves. But we need to move on. One more thing I'll say is, remember last Sunday, we talked about the title for Jesus in Romans chapter, excuse me, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's how we can be justified freely because he himself actually is righteous. Okay, let's move on to number four. Are we on four? Okay, we're on number four. Another point of ignorance where we don't want to be ignorant is ignorance of historical theology. Ignorance of historical theology. I won't give you any verses on this. I'm just going to ask you to think with me about being ignorant of history and what's happened before us. True or false? We, in the 21st century, are the first Christians to have ever lived. False, right? True or false, we're the first Christians, though, who have the Bible. False. We're the first Christians to ever have the Holy Spirit. False. Put it a different way, we're the first Christians to ever have theological conflicts. It's false. I'm being ridiculous because... It would really be good for us if we, not, we don't elevate history as authoritative because anything and everything has been done in history. But to at least pay attention. How has the Spirit of God been working? What about this debate that happened between these people? What about that debate that happened between these people? What about the fact that that debate was repeated in that century and repeated in that century and repeated in that century? Instead of us trying to reinvent the wheel and ignore history, and you know how it turns out when we try to reinvent the wheel, what happens? It's usually square, right? We don't do a very good job. Let's pay attention and say, how has God led his people when they had their Bible open, when they were praying, when they were earnest? We can learn some things, and we really should. 
We can learn before the Reformation debates that took place. We can learn during the Reformation where there was a big, huge battle over justification. We can learn from Martin Luther. He wasn't perfect, but we can learn from him. We can learn from John Calvin. Not perfect, but we can learn. We can learn from Beza who came after him. Not perfect, but we can learn. And they are in the heat of arguing over whether or not it's justification by faith alone or faithfulness by us. Francis Turretin, more debates, and the list could go on and on and on. What we don't want to be is like the seminary president who saw there were problems in the church. Note to self, there are always problems in the church. And his idea was there are problems in the church, so I'm going to get rid of all theology books, and I'm going to ignore all of Christian history, and I'm going to figure it all out, just me and the Holy Spirit in my Bible. Biblicism. And it sounds pious, and it sounds good, and if you think long enough, it sounds arrogant. And he started teaching really weird, strange things about the doctrine of justification that he didn't need to be teaching because it's water under the bridge, nothing new under the sun. We don't want to be those kinds of Christians. We want to pay attention to how God may have been working in the past. Biblical history, extra-biblical history, paying attention. So many things I want to say. Think about. When I was in seminary, we were encouraged to, to, to read Richard Baxter because he wrote a book called The Reformed Pastor. Richard Baxter is this amazing person who did amazing pastoral ministry. Um, I didn't have a lot of historical theology classes for different reasons that I won't mention. Then the more you learn about the debates regarding justification and the more you learn historical theology, Richard Baxter wrote a ton about justification. A ton about justification. And Richard Baxter was infamous for denying justification by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone. And John Owen and Richard Baxter had it out for each other over this doctrine. I wish I would have known that. I wish I would have known that instead of being told that you need to be like Richard Baxter. Richard Baxter, he was, he would go to people's houses all the time and take care of all their needs and he was wanting to catechize them and he was always concerned about their welfare and always concerned and neglect family and neglect everything else all because you've got to be in the people's home all of the time. Guess what? I better be in your home all the time too if your final justification is dependent upon your obedience. Huh. That would have been helpful to know. I side with John Owen. I want to care about you. But you have been justified by faith in Christ now. Theology matters, folks. It matters a lot. Historical theology matters. Okay, let's move on. Let's move on to another one. Number five, another point of ignorance where we don't want to be ignorant would be ignorance of God's requirement. Ignorance of God's requirement. If you can turn to Luke chapter 10, you'll see God's requirement according to Jesus. God's requirement according to Jesus. I referenced this last week, probably the week before, but we didn't go there. We're actually going to go there now. This is really, really helpful. I promise. It's worth it. 
Try asking someone. Try asking a friend who's not a Christian, who is a Christian. You can say, my pastor asked me to do this. You can blame me. I don't mind. I care. Um, Try asking someone, what do you think God requires for eternal life? It's a good question to ask people. What does God require for eternal life? Now, I hope if you're talking to a Christian, they say you have to believe in Jesus. And that's the right answer. I, I, I welcome that answer. Great answer. But actually, what I'm talking about here is what's behind that? Why did Jesus have to do what he did? So let's do this. Let's take Jesus out of the equation, right? Let's say, what does God require so that we then, if we don't meet the requirement, we need Jesus to meet the requirement? What does God require for eternal life? Jesus answers the question through someone else. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. If you've been in Omaha Bible Church and I've been your pastor longer than five minutes, your Bible might be worn out in Luke unless you're digital. Okay? Because <laughs> we go here a lot. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer, a legal expert, stood up to put him, that is Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's the $10 bazillion question, right? How do I gain eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. How about that? He didn't say you're wrong. He said, you're right. And if you do that, remember the context is eternal life. Do this and you will live. Remember last week we talked about what God requires and we talked about how trying to summarize this and capture the idea. People have talked about personal, perfect. What's the, what's the last one? Perpetual obedience. They're just drawing upon this passage. Love God, with, love God with all of your heart and with all of your soul, all of your strength, all of your might, all of your mind. It's said slightly different ways. That, that the idea is with all of your being, even your motives, as appropriately, you love God. The man knows that's the requirement. And Jesus affirms him in saying that's the requirement. There are so many people that I know and talk to on a regular basis that don't know that's the requirement. God helps those who help themselves. If you just do enough, if you give enough, if you're charitable enough, if you try enough, if you perfectly, perpetually, personally, that's God's requirement because he's God. And love your neighbor as yourself because they're made in God's image. They deserve special attention. That's the requirement. Romans 10 would talk about this. We're not going to take the time to go to Romans 10. But if I could plead with you to know this, if I could plead with you to have this in your mind as you talk to believers and unbelievers, because if we don't know this is the requirement, we won't look outside of ourselves to someone, to, to someone else to meet the requirement. And we won't understand justification by grace alone, through faith alone in the finished work of Christ alone, because there's only one who meets the requirement. Remember, again, last week, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The righteous. Roman, or Luke chapter 10, verse 25, the do this and live reality. One meets the requirement. I don't meet the requirement. That man couldn't meet the requirement. You can't meet the requirement. 
But there's one who can meet the requirement. Romans chapter 5. Through one man's obedience, we have justification. Oh, so awesome. So great. That's why we worship Christ. He and he alone meets the obligation. That's why we look to him. Let's not be ignorant about that. We're desperate and we look to him and he's the great one who can say, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden by the law's requirements, the do this and live requirement. Let's go on to another point of ignorance that we want to avoid. Ignorance of imputation. Imputation. Another big theological word not used as often but also important related to justification. To be, uh, to, imputation means credit. Think banking, um, if, you, if something's credited to your account. In Romans chapter 4, verse 5, I told you it's a good word to know, or a good verse to know because it talks about not only justification but also imputation. It says, His faith is counted, imputed, credited as righteousness. And in the context, clearly, it's Christ's righteousness, His adherence to the law is imputed, is counted to us as righteousness when we believe in Him. Lots of people don't know what imputation is. I was talking to, I think, a third-year seminary student at a reputable seminary, sitting outside enjoying lunch. He was, at one point in time, a member of this church. And I said, so you're at seminary, you know, three years, and you're going to graduate soon, and you're getting done here. And Could you tell me what imputation is? He said, I know I'm supposed to know that. I all but said, I think you're at the wrong seminary. If you don't have imputation, Christ's righteousness credited, Christ's law-keeping credited to you, it's impossible to have justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. God isn't going to declare you righteous based upon nothing. He's going to declare you righteous based upon the credited righteousness of Christ in your account. So if you trust in Jesus, his perfect obedience to God's law is credited to you. So now God can declare you a law keeper because someone has kept it for you. Okay, imputation. In theology, we call this the imputation, the crediting of Christ's active obedience. Okay, his positive adherence to the law. Maybe you've never heard that before. That's fine. You don't need to know the label. But in theology, we talk about all that Christ did is suffering. Throughout his whole life, he suffered. The book of Hebrews is clear on that. He suffered ultimately on the cross, but his whole life is suffering, acquainted with sorrows and grief. And his whole life was obedient. So really, they're inseparable, but we might look at them from two different angles. The imputation of the active obedience of Christ. Some of you have maybe, maybe never heard of it just because, that's fine. I don't use the vernacular all the time. Maybe you haven't heard it because uh, in dispensationalism, which is super popular in America, uh, leading dispensationalists hate the doctrine. Okay? John Nelson Darby hated the doctrine of the imputation of Christ's act of obedience. Harry Ironside followed Darby, hated the doctrine. This is why, by the way, one reason I like Charles Haddon Spurgeon so much um, because he was so adamantly opposed to Darby and Darbyites because they attacked the foundation of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone. That is the active obedience of Christ's righteousness credited. I like Spurgeon. I like Spurgeon a lot for different reasons. 
I wish I could preach more like Spurgeon. I've been to his grave, but the anointing didn't come off. (laughs) But he loved the gospel so much in preaching the gospel that he was willing to say, those Darbyites are loons theologically because they're attacking what undergirds the doctrine upon which we have a standing church. Again, historical theology actually matters. It actually matters. Imputation. There won't be a test about imputation before you leave today, I promise. But if I say, can you tell me what it means to be justified? I hope you can say it means to be declared righteous. And if I say, what's righteous mean? You say, keeping the law. That would be awesome if you could do that for me today. I'll give you a little bit of time to leave before me because I don't want to intimidate you. (laughs) But (laughs) imputation is simple as well. Again, we don't have zero in our account. We were in the red because of guilt, but Christ doesn't bring us to zero. No, Christ makes us wealthy with righteousness so God can declare us righteous. He's a great, great, great Savior. Justification actually matters. Let's move on to number seven, and that would be ignorance regarding the law of God and the gospel of God. We'll do this one rather quickly. There's a law framework and there's a gospel framework or there's a, there's a paradigm through which lots of Christians read the Bible, and I'm going to encourage you to do the same thing. A law-gospel paradigm. Okay? A paradigm is, is a tool to help you see things, uh, lenses to see things through. So when you read the Old quiz time, okay? Is there law in the Old Testament? That's low-lying fruit. Come on, guys. Is there law in the Old Testament? Yeah, there's law in the Old Testament. Of course, there's law in the Old Testament. Is there gospel in the Old Testament? It's It's getting harder, but you're saying yes. Romans chapter 15, right? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him, imputed, by the way. It was counted to him as righteousness. That's gospel. It wasn't based upon what he did. Um, now, let's keep going with our little quiz, quiz time. Um, in the New Testament, is there a law? That's a hard one. We ju- di- didn't we just read Luke 10? Yeah, we just read Luke 10. Do this and live. Love God, love neighbor. That's from Leviticus 19, I think. Huh. There's law in the New Testament. God re- has requirements. In fact, they're essentially the same as in the old. If it's love God and love neighbor, is there gospel in the new Come on, right? (laughs) Of course there is. But what theologians have done, and again, we hear theologian, we might think, oh, bad actors. Well, there are some bad theologians and some good ones. It's the study of God. But mature Christians have read the Bible and said, how do we help people sort all this out? Because there's tons of commands in the old and new and promises in the old and in the new. Well, how do we make sense of this? How do we, especially then after the Protestant Reformation, and now we have printing press, and it used to be services in Latin. You don't know Latin, you just have to trust us. And now we put the Bible in your language, and now you're going to read the Bible, and how do I make heads or tails of this whole thing? All these commands, all of these promises. Help me out, pastor. If it's what God requires, Old or New Testament, law. If it's what God provides freely, like a promise, gospel. It's a super helpful paradigm. Super helpful. So here's quiz time again. Do this and live. Law or gospel? That's total law, right? It doesn't get any more law-ish. Do this and you'll have eternal life. Love God and love neighbor. That's, that's law. 
Christ died for your sins. Law or gospel? It's total gospel, right? Freely, what he did for you, gift. This, this isn't hard. I mean, it is hard. Martin Luther said it's so hard that people who haven't figured it out should get a doctorate. Okay, because there's nuances and there's complications. So when you leave today, I would like you to have, I'll give you like your honorary doctoral kind of, you can move the tassel from this side to that side. But we've got to have something of this. What we can't do is say what the 1994 catechism says, that the gospel is the new law. That, 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 that ruins both, right? We're going to ruin the law by lowering the standard and ruin the gospel by saying it's something somehow we do. That's crazy. That's what my friend Mike Horton says is gospel. You ruin both. Instead, let's have law fully intact and Jesus as the, the righteous who meets the obligation. Law gospel paradigm. Martin Luther was about this. He affirmed law gospel paradigm. John Calvin, who was not a Lutheran last time I checked, <laughs> affirmed it as well. Theodore Beza, who came after Calvin, said that it was and remains one of the greatest abuses corrupting Christianity is blurring law and gospel. William Perkins, uh, the Englishman in 1558, or in the 1500s, I should say, he was born in 1558. I doubt he said this when he was born. Um, The basic principle in application is to know whether the passage is a statement of the law or of the gospel. And I try to take that to heart every week. Is this what God requires, which is really important, or is this what God provides, which is really important? If we don't don't have that clear in our minds, I can almost guarantee you that you're not going to be a friend of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone. Your Sinus, who wrote the commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism, divided the whole Bible, he said, into two parts, law and gospel. And he didn't mean Old Testament, New Testament. What God requires, what God provides. Let's move on to to number eight, ignorance of Christ's justification. Ignorance of Christ's justification. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. It's really worth you looking at. Um, Christ's justification. 1 Timothy 3, verse 16. And this text is expecting all Christians to affirm it and understand it. Fascinating to me. He's going to, he's going to refer to a statement here as something that all Christians confess. Okay? All Christians agree to this. It probably is one of the earliest Christian confessions. Okay, so people don't have Bibles. Maybe they have part of the Bible. They don't have all the Bible. They have the Old Testament and some of the other writings. And so when Paul is writing to Timothy, 1 Timothy, people were at least trained in the ABCs to the point where they could say it by memory as a good theological structure and understanding the basics of the faith. It was a tool, again, a confession. So what I find fascinating is how many people don't today don't understand that Jesus was justified. They don't understand the justification of Jesus. How many even pastors, if you say, can you explain the justification of Jesus to me? Don't know what you're talking about. I've been that pastor. So I'm going to be careful about throwing rocks if I live in a glass house. You're going to like this. 
You're going to like this because it matters to you. Let's go. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Great indeed. Told you you were going to like it. Great indeed. We confess. We agree. All Christians agree to this. Is the mystery of godliness. And he's going to summarize gospel truths here. He, Jesus, was manifested in the flesh. Everyone agrees that's incarnation. He became a human being like us. He appeared in the flesh. Vindicated. We're going to come back to that, but that's the word that could be translated justified. D-K-I-A-O in Greek, if you care. Vindicated, justified by the Spirit. Everyone agrees that's resurrection because he was raised by the Spirit. Seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. We won't take the time to figure out what each one of those is, but but the low-lying fruit is incarnation, resurrection, ascension. Those are for sure clear there. Trying to encapsulate, trying to, trying to give us a good simple confession. Yes, we could talk about his death and we could talk about other intricacies, but, but, but he at least wants us to all confess this here. Think about Jesus being justified. Jesus being vindicated. What does that mean? When Jesus was raised, he was raised by the power of the Spirit. And that text tells us when he was raised, he was declared righteous. The resurrection was a declaration of his righteousness. Hang in in there with me. I know it's almost 11. (laughs) The wages of sin is death, the Bible tells us. Jesus never sinned. Jesus not only never sinned, Jesus always did all the right things. So therefore, when Jesus is raised from the dead, it's the official declaration from God. The resurrection is the official declaration from God that Jesus Christ is righteous. That Jesus Christ loved God personally, perpetually, and perfectly. It's an amazing reality. He couldn't stay dead. It would be wrong for him to be dead and stay dead, right? Because he is the righteous. When did God officially declare him? He had declared him this at other times. uh, This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And he now at the end, at the very end, he's raised from the dead. He's the righteous one. He was declared righteous because he is the righteous one. And then if we go back to Romans 4, told you Romans 4 is good. Romans 4.25, delivered up for our trespasses, our violations against God's law, and raised for our justification. Oh, he's our substitute. So I love the doctrine of the justification of Jesus because it's God's official declaration. Jesus is righteous. And I love it even more because it has implications for me because it's a guarantee that I too will be resurrected if I'm trusting in him. And it's a guarantee that God declares me righteous if I'm trusting in him because he's my representative. It's extraordinary. So much for any blasphemous demonic doctrine of you might be finally justified by your works. As sure as Jesus has historically already been resurrected, I'm going to be resurrected. And the resurrection is the declaration of righteousness. When when you're raised, if you're in Christ, when you're raised, it is God's official, at the end, declaration that Pat Abendroth is righteous. Even though Pat Abendroth isn't. 
Because God justifies the ungodly. It's because of Christ. It's so wonderful. It's fantastic. Why don't we know about this stuff? Christians in the first century apparently knew this. We all confess this. They understood justification better than we do. And now number 9 and 10, I can probably only mention almost by name, ignorance of federal headship leads to ignorance regarding justification. Ignorance regarding federal headship. This is Romans chapter 5, verses 12 and following, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, God chose to deal with the human race through two representatives, two official representatives, two, we call them federal representatives, comes from the Latin foidos. Oops, I told you I wasn't going to use Latin. It comes from foidos, federal foidos. Uh, it means covenant. So God's formal representatives, Adam and his disobedience leads to condemnation. And then Jesus, for all who would trust in him, his obedience, it says, leads to justification. And if we don't understand that reality, we're not going to understand justification very well. And when people deny federal headship, I can guarantee you one thing. At best, their doctrine of justification, at best, is going to be weak, if not wrong. If you want to learn about justification, what you do is, in the end, and you're in this battle, and you've got to sort it out, and you've got to really work through the issues, time and time again, I'm speaking from experience. That doesn't make it true, uh, but I speak from experience. You go to the sources, and what you end up doing is you go to those who affirm federal headship. Let's move on to the final one, and that is number 10. We don't want to be ignorant here, and that would be ignorance of sanctification. Ignorance of sanctification. And I mean it in the sense of life transformation. I know it can be used in different ways. It's true that God changes our lives. It's true that God transforms our lives. That's not what justification is. It's declarative. It's true God does transform us from one uh, level to the next and he conforms us into the image of Christ, but that's sanctification. And I would encourage you just to think like the Apostle Paul does when he writes under inspiration, Romans 1 to 5, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone. And then in Romans 6, it should affect the way that you live. It needs to affect the way that you live. You've been raised with Christ. You're no longer spiritually dead. It's going to affect the way that you live but you're justified as an ungodly person. And now that you're united to Christ and you've been raised with Christ, Romans 6, you're now able to do godly things. Think of it in these terms, and I'm borrowing from others who've gone before me. Do this and live. God's legal requirement. We can't do it. We look to Christ. But now that we live, because of Christ, eternal life, now that we live, we do this case I went too fast for you, okay? Do this and live. Jesus establishes that's God's legal requirement. We can't do it and live, so we look to Christ for eternal life. So once that's settled, though, because of Christ, now that we live eternal life, we do this. Remember the this? Loving God, loving neighbor. But keep things in the right places. Both are really important. But it's important that we don't commit the Galatians 1 problem and meddle the two together or reverse them. So, 
you are a much, much better audience than the pastors at the seminar. Because that was on Zoom. (laughs) So, (laughs) thank you for your attention. We need to pray and hopefully be committed to our great God who justifies. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the fact that Jesus Christ is the righteous. Thank you that that means he is a perfect substitute for us and that we can look outside of ourselves to the one who accomplishes redemption for us. The one who we can trust and know that then even in the here and now we have been justified by faith. May this be encouraging to us and moving to our hearts that we would want to tell others of the great Savior who says, come to me, all who are burdened, and I will give you rest. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.